really, cyber cybersecurity can be very expensive, but it can also be free. It can also be very cheap. I, I often say this, to me, cybersecurity is not a technology problem, it is an organizational psychology problem, first and foremost. Well, welcome back to the Public Money Pod, a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. And of course, we are proudly sponsored by MuniPro, the Government Finance Officers Association, Build America Mutual, and Odyssey Advisors. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Fiscal Policy Wonk, uh, recent equestrian among many other talents, Liz Farmer. Liz, welcome back. Thanks, Justin. It's it's good to be back. I've been running around the, the West and the Southwest for the past couple of weeks. And yeah, as you mentioned, we went on a horseback ride in South, in uh, New Mexico and in the, in the high desert. And it was, I, I used to ride growing up and I was one of those snobby, like equestrian riders and kind of looked down on Western, you know, like, oh, Western saddles are so big and comfortable. But now I, uh, now in my, my older and, and wiser self realizes that Western saddles are the way to go. Uh, so it was, it was really fun. Uh, it was good to get out there. And the instructor we had was still good with kids and talked a mile a minute. He happened to be a stunt man too movies. So that was really cool. <laughs> yes. As someone who has paid for many lessons, many camps, uh, all in the equestrian rather than more utilitarian riding a horse world, I, I can directly attest to <laughs> how it's uh, both snobbish and expensive at times, but that's not, not to be critical. It's just, it's just stating facts here. Absolutely. <laughs> Terrific. Well, you know, we're talking today about something that probably doesn't get nearly as much attention in large part because it's just a scary thing that no one likes to talk about uh, at, at multiple levels, but that is cybersecurity and cyber risks and the way that cyber risks manifest in the world of public money. A few years ago, I was having a, a conversation with a former student of mine who is the, the public works director at a very large city that shall remain unnamed at the moment. And we were talking about some of the big challenges facing that operation. And we talked, obviously, from a public money standpoint, a lot about unfunded maintenance, uh, all of the dollars that are going to have to be spent to maintain and then eventually replace a lot of this infrastructure, a topic we talk about on this podcast all the time. And he was quick to point out to me, yeah, that's all important. But the thing that really keeps me up at night is somebody taking over the computers that run our essential infrastructure systems. And that seems to have become a very pronounced problem as of late. Some high profile instances of some major, of, of some major breaches, both data breaches, as well as losing operational functional control of certain systems. And the question then becomes, what do we do about that? And what's it going to cost to deal with that? And given how challenging these issues are, we are extraordinarily fortunate to have uh, one of the real experts in this space, Omid Ramani from Fitch Ratings, has been talking about cyber risk in state and local governments for some time. And obviously, as a credit rating analyst, uh, he has a, a public money perspective on these issues. And so we're really looking forward to the insights that he can offer us. Uh, you've certainly come across these issues, Liz, and covered many of those very high profile kinds of challenges. What comes to mind when you uh, think about cyber risk and uh, what it means for public money? Yeah, I think cyber, cyber risk is certainly something that credit rating agencies have been commenting more on in, more on in the last, I don't know, five, five, six, seven years. And the thing that strikes me about it is there's certainly a direct connection to public finance because spending on this stuff is expensive and you can't really see it. You don't see anything, in fact, until something goes wrong. Like if you, if nothing's 
in your mind is happening. If nothing happens in the public sphere, then actually everything's working. But it's only when something goes wrong that this really gets the attention. And and I mean, and that that was something that kind of was was driven home in a story I wrote several years ago on um, cybersecurity, uh, sorry, cyber attacks in higher education and how they were increasing. And that was the the CISOs, the chief information security officers, kind of said again and again that the that the money went there went to them when when there was extra money or when something was when there was a huge concern. But on a regular basis, it was difficult to get the consistent amount of money they needed in order to really keep things safe. And there's no, there's never any guarantee either. So that's also an issue. And and then from just the, the uh, I guess, consumer, the the um, constituent perspective, I, I'm reminded of, uh, so I live in Washington County, Maryland, and late last year for about a month, there, the county had a, there was a cyber attack and the, um, the county, like everything went down. And, and it was also, it was property tax payment time. So people couldn't pay their property taxes. And so it was just, and it went on for about a month. And, and like that is so many localities have had this kind of issue at this point. And it just strikes me how, you know, these, this kind of thing really does affect everybody at some point. But again, it's only when, when things go wrong that people start clamoring about it. And so it's, it's a, it's a really tough issue. It's it's kind of one of those unseen problems. Definitely. Yeah. It reminds me of when I was a kid and had a paper route. No one notices when the paper shows up on time and in the right place every day, but they certainly notice when it doesn't show up. And that is exactly the problem. And it's it's a it's both a challenge and an opportunity for people in public money when you think about it, particularly the CFOs in cities and, and states and public utilities and those kinds of organizations, they they see those hidden costs. They can have those discussions. They can, in some cases, even make the business case for the kinds of investments that need to be made. They can probably do it better than just about anyone. It's something we've seen a lot lately is that kind of convergence of finance and, and IT and something that I've written on and you've written on and others have written on. In some ways, they're kind of two sides of the same coin now, which makes a lot of sense in large part because they both have these functional responsibilities that span the entire organization. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they think about the world the same way. And it certainly doesn't mean that they have the same perspective on what to do about these kinds of, of challenges, particularly around things like cyber risk. So it's an ongoing kind of dance. And I, but clearly the kinds of major, major concerns that have come up around cyber risk have sort of forced that relationship between the CFO and the CIO and forced the CFO to take a much broader leadership role on these issues in a way that they, they may or may not want to have that role, but they're going to have it because it's really yeah. become a very, very high profile issue. Well, we are pleased to welcome to the Public Money Pod, Omid Ramani from Fitch Ratings here to talk about cyber risk and what it means for state and local public money. Omid, welcome to the Public Money Pod. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, Omid, it's, uh, this is going to be, I think, a really, a really informative conversation. I have been reporting on cyber attacks for a number of years, as as have a lot of people. It seems like one happens every every month or so, makes the headlines. I'm sure that there are more that don't make the headlines. Can you kind of give us a rundown of, of what happens in a cyber attack? What's ransomware, malware? What are the kind of different ways that, that governments get hacked? Uh, as you mentioned, the, the biggest challenge that we're facing right now in relation to governments is still ransomware. 
But ransomware is a type of malware, and ransomware has a very specific uh, purpose and focus. It's basically designed to take control of a portion of your assets, whether that is your computer systems itself, um, whether that is your data, but usually it just locks you out of systems, essentially. That's the purpose of it. And it encrypts the systems, basically means that you would need a key or a, um, a code to be able to unlock those systems. And that code is provided in, in exchange for a financial transference to the threat actor, to the folks that are propagating this type of um, software. And essentially, that is the largest challenge for municipal governments at this point. And I, it's something that's going to continue to go on um, by large part. I, other than that, the other types of attacks that we you know, monitor in the sector is things like business email compromise. That's another type of theft where basically using social engineering or tricking people, uh, threat actors are able to steal money from people, have money sent to other accounts or other origins, masquerading as vendors usually. That's uh, basically what business email compromise is. There has been, as of late, especially since 2020, instances of hacktivism. Hacktivism is cyber attacks with the explicit purpose of political messaging or a change in behavior from the victim. Those are still rare. I, I was able to document one this year. So compared to like all the ransomware attacks that I've been able to document with our issuers, one hack, one instance of hacktivism really is a very minor scenario. And then the last one, and the one that worries me the most is very rare, but very destructive if implemented is havoc-based attacks or what some people in the cybersecurity industry call killware. That's basically a type of attack where it is not a financial motivation. It is not a process to which get someone to change their behavior. It is purely an attack to cause physical damage and destruction and possible uh, threat to human life. Where did these threats come from? Most of the time, the threat actors are abroad in countries that do not have extradition with the United States. As a result, uh, especially when it comes to ransomware, uh, and even conflict-based attacks, these types of attacks are extremely high reward and low risk. You know, I'll give you an example, like when it comes to things like theft of data or data exfiltration in the past, if you were a quasi-nation state actor and wanted to get involved in that, you would literally have to send a physical team, like physical people had to be involved in that. That would have been a very high risk sort of operation today that can be done from a computer from half a world away without any risk to any personnel. Um, so that that has really revolutionized how cybercrime is now fitting into the overall way that threat actors are targeting the United States. So my background is more in cyber warfare and cyber terrorism. And um, one thing I always say when I speak about this subject is that the threat actors don't really, uh, when it comes to politically motivated situations, they don't differentiate between federal and state and local governments. To them, American government is American government. Um, and I think that's something that the state and local community has had a harder time grappling with because you know they don't have the same resources, for example, as the federal government does when it comes to defensive capabilities or resources and whatnot. But at the same time, they are on the front lines of these sorts of situations. And especially since the majority of the threats come from organized groups in places that we have no control over, we have no extradition treaties, there's no way for us to go and grab these criminals. 
as a result of that, even just in the ransomware sector, this has become an extremely lucrative proposition. It, it makes a lot of money. I mean, the organizations that run these ransomware operations, they, they run like corporations. They have offices, they have staff, they have financial analysts, people like myself that go through disclosure documents, which we happily provide in the United States on a regular basis. They have algorithms and models that they can run to come up with an appetizing sort of ransom amount that would appeal to a victim. So this is a very organized operation. This threat is growing. Um, I think just in 2022, over 10,000 new strains of ransomware were documented. And that was a near 100% increase from 2021. There doesn't seem to be a stop to that yet. So I know that cyber insurance was for, for a period of time there, kind of the big thing to, to have the answer to that. But I've also been hearing as of late that cyber insurance is getting more expensive. So is there a more cost-effective way to address uh, cyber risk? Yeah, so it's it's interesting that the story of cyber risk for munis has always been has always been portrayed as one of resources. And after Atlanta, which I consider to be like the watershed attack that really woke up uh, the state and local community to this emerging risk, cyber insurance became a very popular mode of risk transference. The thing about it is in 2018, cyber insurance was a very, very new product to the insurance world. And it hadn't really matured yet as a result you could get really good coverage for really low premiums without, with very little questions asked. And so what happened is everybody ran out and bought cyber insurance because like, okay, there's this emerging risk. This is how we're going to transfer the risk. We're going to transfer it through insurance. The issue is that that product uh, is, is still in its maturing process, but is now far more mature than it was in 2018. And because a lot of entities, especially for small and medium-sized organizations, decided that their main form of risk transference would be through insurance, some of them didn't take the steps necessary to invest internally in really robust um, cybersecurity countermeasures. Well, what's happening now is, and this is a trend we've been seeing really since 2020 when this got accelerated, is for state and local governments, premiums are going up exponentially year after year. Coverage limits at the same time against those premiums are coming down. And the audits, the insurance audits and the systems audits that the insurance companies are requiring to even qualify for that insurance is increasing at an exponential rate year after year. I mean, I talk to municipal CISOs year after year and every year is the same story. It's telling me like, you would not believe the IT audit we had to go through this year compared to last year to even be able to qualify for the same coverage. So that product is evaporating as the main form of risk transference for this community. Essentially what the insurance companies are realizing is that state and local governments do not have the necessary capabilities as a whole, especially among small to medium-sized ones to meet today's uh, risk landscape. As a result, cyber insurance is not only becoming unaffordable, but frankly, unavailable. Really, cyber cybersecurity can be very expensive, but it can also be free. It can also be very cheap. I, I often say this, to me, cybersecurity is not a technology problem. It is an organizational psychology problem, first and foremost. So if you have an organization that has really robust culture of cyber hygiene, especially vertically, from its smallest member to its most senior member, 
that does a lot of protecting organizations. The, the, the number one threat vector by which these attacks are happening is still through the human element, is still through social engineering, through things like spear phishing or mass phishing, is through uninverted uh, data breaches, lack of training. Those are, that's still the majority of what drives the risk. So investing in its people, an organization is taking a huge step in reducing its risk profile. And I, that's something that I still see uh, as a challenge for this community. For example, I'll, I'll tell you one of the, I think one of the real hampering points across the sector is, you know, a lot of people don't really see their cybersecurity professionals as equal business partners when it comes to the most senior parts of an organization's leadership. They see them as a component unit and not as an equal partner. And that in itself creates a certain level of blinders for executive leadership. So I think there is uh, some cultural changes, some um, philosophical ideas, which their adoption could have a real positive impact. That's a really good point. It reminds me of a story I wrote several years ago on cyber attacks in higher ed. And I spoke with a number of chief, chief information security officers, CISOs, who very much said similar things. And I, and I think that kind of that they are shuffled to the front office when there's a huge problem. But uh, but then everybody forgets about it after the problem's over or when there are no problems. And and it's it's difficult to recognize that something is working when nothing bad is actually happening. <laughs> You know, there's a one thing I've written about recently, and there's been actually a lot of conversations about it uh, as far as uh, associations in the community is the labor challenge. The uh, state and local, the municipal uh, sector is having a hard time recruiting and retaining IT professionals. And that's because there is a significant pay gap between the private sector and the public sector for the exact same professionals. And cybersecurity specifically is one of the fastest growing and in-demand fields in the country. You know, I have a ton of respect for professional IT professionals that work in the state and local government sector purely because they don't have to. Every single one of them can wake up tomorrow and decide, you know what, I'm done. I'm going to go make like twice as much money. So, Amid, obviously in your, in your day job, you're doing muni credit analysis. When you think about the a lot of the risks that we've talked about, whether it's the the actual cyber risks or those kind of organizational culture uh, sorts of questions, human capital questions that you were just describing, how does that fit into the way that you're thinking about the financial position or financial condition of a muni issuer? You know, when we do credit when we do credit analysis, that's a holistic analysis of the creditworthiness of an organization. So a lot of factors that go into that. One of those factors is management and governance, and that's the lens by which we look at cyber risk. Um, you know, when it comes to cyber attacks and organizations having to grapple with these types of attacks, what I often say is cash is king. If you have the money to basically burn through the recovery period, then you're going to be okay. And at Fitch, we're very fortunate to have a you know really strong slate of credits. We, we rate some of the uh, some of the best of the best in, in the muni world. So most of our issuers are are in a good position when it comes to being able to weather um, unforeseen or asymmetric risks, including cyber risk. The impact of a cyber event on an organization can be multi multifaceted. Obviously, it can have a direct impact on cash. If you need to pay a ransom or 
cover immediate costs during downtime, um, you know, that can impact their liquidity. It can have an impact on revenues. For example, as we've seen in the last year, if you're unable to collect taxes, if you're unable to collect uh, fees from ratepayers, that has a direct impact on your revenue at that at that time. And some of that revenue may lag and that may cause, you know, some issues if you had plans for investment or needed to you know, make payments, had vendors that you were dealing with. Over the medium to short term, it can have an impact on expenditures. Probably organizations usually, you know, have an introspective look after these sorts of situations of like, what can we change? What, what do we need to do different so that we don't have to go through this very uncomfortable and embarrassing process again? So that may require instituting new systems, bringing in uh, new resources, hiring new people, creating positions, changing how your organization works. That can have an impact on expenditures, as well as things like capital investment, your long-term capital investment. You know, and then I understand this is not really a mainstream philosophy about this yet, but for me, digital infrastructure is no different than physical infrastructure. And this is another one of the challenges for the municipal communities. When it comes to physical in infrastructure, the decision makers are able to see that and understand why investment needs to be made there. It is very difficult to drag a city council and show them computers and be like, look at this, this needs investment. <laughs> you know, and then try to explain to them why a network is antiquated and what that even means and why why that's a problem they uh that becomes a lot more abstract and as a result you know that resource allocation gets lost but for me i don't really see a difference between physical infrastructure and digital infrastructure different sectors within the uh state and local government sectors are extremely reliant on technology. I'll, I'll tell you, look, for example, healthcare. You know, today's healthcare institutions are not really hospitals, they're IT departments that provide health. You know, school districts are becoming IT departments that teach kids. Uh, we are becoming more and more reliant on the efficiencies that technology creates. And as a result, that infrastructure should in theory become more and more important. And especially across the municipal sector, I'll tell you like network infrastructure is a big topic when I talk to municipal CISOs. Technical debt is a huge issue. You know, to hear that munis have something like 50% technical debt is not unusual to me. We're in the private sector. This would be like unfathomable for an organization to have something like 50% technical debt. One of the things that I've liked about the IT space compared to the more traditional infrastructure space is they're not afraid to use words like technical debt. We we often gloss over it with you know, unfunded maintenance or uh, you know infra inf ongoing infrastructure concerns. The IT folks just say it straight away: it's debt. It's it's money you're going to have to spend at some point. I can imagine too. Then compared to roads and sewers and bridges, these are also very expensive spends when they when you have to make them regardless of how much technical debt you have yeah overhauling networks is very expensive you know the other thing that i think traditional folks in the muni world have a harder time digesting is that it infrastructure has a much shorter life cycle than physical infrastructure does i mean you think about like five to you know seven years is ancient 
that's uncomfortable for people who are used to like plants with 50 year life cycles. So it, it's, it's something, again, it's a philosophy thing, right? It's just a perspective difference. But this, when I was saying there's a lot of perspective changes and philosophical changes that are, could lead to much better philosophy of defense across the sector, this is one of them. You know, the other one that I talk about, and you know, folks usually get surprised when I say this, but for me and for a lot of cybersecurity people, if you talk to them, IT and cybersecurity are different. In fact, they're, uh, they're, con they're a conflict of interest. Traditionally speaking, IT's job is to implement systems and bring in infrastructure that create new efficiencies. Cybersecurity's job is to reduce <laughs> the number. I'm picturing what you're describing and it's like a room. It's much easier to guard against two exits versus 20. And since the pandemic, there have been a lot of these startup companies that are offering these very specialized services to states and localities. And to me, it seems like, I mean, while they're all well, I don't know about all of them, but they they also they seem like great ideas and super useful. But it seems that you're adding more exits <laughs> into this place that you have to defend. Uh, how do states and localities are are they looking at the cybersecurity protocols of of their vendors, or how does that even how does it work? You know, third party risk or vendor risk is fast becoming one of the major vectors by which organizations are falling victim. Right now, we have the uh, the Move It hack that we're still going through right now. It's proving to be one of the largest and most comprehensive mass breaches on record. Uh, in the past, we had things like SolarWinds or Excelion, and these are some of the big ones, but you can have very small ones. You know, what a lot of organizations do is they, as I like to call it, they fortify their front door and they leave their back door wide open. <laughs> you know, you don't really have any control over how another organization is choosing to do their security. Part of having a really robust culture of cyber hygiene is to know how to do business with external parties that you're going to allow into your network. That means having really robust conversations with your vendors about I need to know, like, if you want in on my network, I need to know what your security protocols looks like. And if you're going to take responsibility for, you know, if something happens that causes an issue for my organization. So that's a, uh, that's a conversation that, you know, is becoming very typical in the, in the private sector. I think the public sector is starting to see that just because of just in the last two years, there's been so many organizations in the muni world that have fallen victim to attacks as a result of uh, vendors or other business partners that are outside of their organizations. You know, in the world of tomorrow, the emerging risks are going to be are going to present new challenges. One of the ones that I'm really tracking right now is um, AI-driven malware and polymorphic malware. Things like uh, there's now, everybody's now familiar with ChatGPT. Well, there's now malicious ones that have come on the market. There's been two that have been reported on recently. And these, uh, these systems are going to have the ability to write their own novel ransomware. They're not great at it right now, but that's the thing about machine learning is it learns and it improves faster than we can. It's going to get better. You know, we're saying in 2022, there was 10,000 new variants of ransomware. You add AI to that and the sky's the limit. So we're coming to a world where what I really care about when I talk to organizations or when I talk to conferences is how well is your response planning? 
for muni, some of this can be life-saving, right? You're talking about like healthcare or police or fire. Like, can you run your organization if you don't have access to any of your systems? Have you tried doing that? Does everybody know how to act in that situation? In a world where this risk is only going to become worse if it ever gets better, recovery is going to be key. I'm going to quote Rocky. It's not going to be about how hard you can hit. It's going to be about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. Of course, only on the public money pod would you get polymorphous capability and Rocky in the same question. That's fantastic. Omid, what is the CFO's role in this when you when you look out and, and and the landscape that you just described how should a state and local cfos be thinking about how they can play a constructive role in all this sure listen to your it professionals your it directors your your cisos your chief risk officers if you have them listen to them if they're coming to you and saying something needs investment more often than not that deserves some thought because like i said um, those are some of the hardest staff for any organization to replace. So by virtue of them being there, that itself tells you something. The other thing they have to realize is the buck stops with them. You know, they are in a position to explain things to council or to boards that the IT director may not be in. They are really in a position to see digital infrastructure the same as physical infrastructure, I would argue, more than any other office. You know, we're only going to continue to become more reliant on technology. That's the, the march of progress is something that throughout human history cannot be stopped, no matter how hard you fight against it. So because that's the case, as you know, fiduciaries to the communities that, that they serve, they have to come to terms that this is going to be an ongoing risk and it's going to require investment. The person that has to deal with the outfall of an incident from a practical level, even more than the IT staff, is going to be that finance director because he's going to have to allocate monies to recovering from this that weren't planned to be allocated to recovering from this. And that means monies have to be deallocated or reallocated from something else. So allocating money are you referring to paying a ransom or spending the money to get systems back online or both and, and what are the do you have a sense of the average costs there as well it's very difficult to pin that number down for state and local governments because very little research gets done on this topic in state and local governments the average cost in 2022 i think was between four and a half to five and a half million dollars that number is extremely broad and it's i don't consider it to be a really good um compass to what the actual cost is because that's going to be super dependent on the organization what type of an attack it suffered what percentages of their systems were impacted how much of those systems were lost how much data was just destroyed you know to give you an idea you know the atlanta one the, the watershed attack, the ransom amount, I think in that one was something like $55,000. The direct cost of recovery proved to be about 19 million within direct costs, like I think over $30 million. So it's super dependent on the organization and this is a long-term recovery. So this is not something that, hey, uh, you know, if your organization has robust enough uh, systems and staff in place to be able to get right back up and keep moving forward, then sure, the cost is gonna be less, but 
if you find yourself, hey, like we did an audit after the fact and you know, we got 60%, 70% technical debt, all this needs to be replaced, that, that can become a capital and intensive thing. You know, when I talk about a reallocation, that's what I'm talking about is having to spend monies that were may have been earmarked for something else that you weren't because you weren't thinking about this the day before the attack that now have to be uh, spent on the attack. And you got to understand this land, the cyber risk landscape literally changes week by week. It evolves so fast. And that's another form of discomfort, I think, for real traditional managers for state and local governments is about how fast this stuff changes. A good example is Log4j. You know, before Log4j, a lot of IT professionals went to bed completely comfortable at how safe their systems were. They woke up and it's Swiss cheese the next day. Nothing had changed other than a vulnerability was discovered that was always there. So it requires adaptation. And I think organizations that are really used to flexibility and adaptation are going to do better. But what you described that there is a lot of inability to predict when the next cyber attack is going to happen, much like it's it's tough to predict when the nat- next natural disaster is going to hit, how much it's going to cost, how much damage. Is there a, a federal role at all here in like a FEMA-esque kind of organization, but for cyber attacks? Yeah. Uh, so that's been a real hot topic as of late about the role of the federal government uh, in all this. And, you know, there's been a lot of movement from the administration. There's been a lot of talking about it. Uh, there's several working groups about it, but I'll tell you at the end of the day, it, it'll, it always comes down to appropriation and money. And, you know, that, that just seems to be where the conversation sort of um, stalls. I was uh, at a conference recently and I asked, and I got asked about, you know, to talk about the security blanket that covers uh, governments in the U.S. And my, uh, my response to that was, well, it's, it's less of a blanket from where I've seen it and more of a quilt. And parts of it are made of steel and parts of it are made of tissue paper. And there's a lot of it that just doesn't have any, anything there. Because of how we do government, right? I mean, we have a sovereignty of local governments, sovereignty of state governments, and then sovereignty of federal governments. And, you know, the, in our system, they're it's designed that they don't really step into each other as much, but as, as good as that is and, and as helpful as that is for a system of government, it makes it more difficult to do national level uh, defense the way, for example, European countries do. Just to give you an example, there is something like 50,000 drinking water systems in the United States and 50,000 different philosophies of cybersecurity and approaches on how to do cybersecurity for something that's a critical resource. And that, that becomes the challenge, right? The municipal sector as a whole just, just doesn't have the financial resources to tackle this problem, especially when it comes to critical resources like power or water or critical services like healthcare or police. You know, this has been a topic that's been ongoing now and you know how do we get more federal dollars or more federal involvement or more federal investment really into this sector because the thing is yeah local governments may need to be in charge of their own affairs and their own operations but it it does at some point become a matter of national security well a lot of good advice a lot of good insight from from you omid uh thank you so much for joining us on the on the public money pod it's been a real pleasure It was an absolute blast.
Thanks again to Amid Romani. Um, I, I, as much as I learned, I also felt a little depressed after talking with him. There's just so so much to digest, um, and, a, and a lot of work to to be done. It's a really really tough topic. And the ripped from the headlines piece I want to highlight today is actually kind of expands upon that. The story is from Infosecurity Magazine. It came out earlier this month. It's called Cyber. The headline says cyber attacks, cyber attacks targeting government agencies increased 40%. So more scary news, I guess. So I'm going to just kind of lay out some of the, some of the top line information. The story says that cyber attacks against government agencies are up 40%. This is in the second quarter of 2023. During that time, there were 1.5 million attacks across 90 days. 55,000 of which um, were targeting public sector organizations. So that's about like almost 4%. This information, by the way, is from BlackBerry Cybersecurity's second quarterly threat intelligence report. This period of time included the Lockbit incident against the city of Oakland, California, BlackBite's royal ransomware campaign that affected Dallas, Texas. The story goes on to say that the public sector was the industry that saw the most innovative tools and exploits used against it. And it ranked second in the total number of attacks for this time period. Healthcare was the first um, with more than 100,000 attacks. As we know, healthcare can also include public hospital systems. So my guess, too, is that this uh, intelligence report probably separately tracks education. So there's also public education. So potentially when you add all of these up, public sector agencies could be maybe even rivaling private hospitals or 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 the most targeted group. A couple other things to point out before I wrap up. The report noted that attackers are di- diversifying their tooling in an attempt to bypass defensive controls. Um, Omid definitely mentioned that. In total, um, or rather in average over this time, there were, this is astounding, one, 11.5 attacks per minute during the time period. And almost on average, two of per minute were these novel malware types of attacks. And one more thing to note, uh, the story says that Russia-backed Fancy Bear, I, had, <laughs> it's, I don't know where that came, the name comes from, and North Korea-backed Lazarus Group, uh, they're the most active uh, threat actors during this time period again. So this just all to me underscores what Omid was talking about and it also tells me how hard it is to prevent really totally prevent anything, but in particularly for the public sector, why it's difficult for the public sector to, to, to keep on with this. As as Omid mentioned, there's all that technical debt. So the, the, the lack of investment or the delayed investment, plus this, the diversifying tooling, you know, the, the changing attempts and the constant iterations of, you know, how can we sneak in the, the hole here? I mean, those two things combined tell me that it, this, this really is in, a problem. You're never going to stop everything, but it's. I think it's becoming increasingly difficult to to stop enough, perhaps. And so, just it to, again, it just uh, really highlights some of those things that Omid was was sharing with us. Justin, as I kind of rattle off all that information, what what were your takeaways? It's great. It's a great piece, and I'm I'm glad you're able to highlight it. And does an, a nice job of getting into a little bit more detail of some of the trends that Omid mentioned, and kind of the the why behind some of those trends, as he mentioned, novel malware, generative AI being used to to generate whatever you want to call them, boutique-specific attacks just for your system. It's it's really a, a scary and, and daunting issue. I think that my takeaway from from that piece and just this entire conversation has been it reminds us of this one of the central challenges that we face anytime we talk about public management, public administration, and public money in particular within that, which is 
people, voters, taxpayers, citizens like to hear us talk about solving problems. They don't like to hear us talking about ameliorating problems or mitigating problems or containing problems. It's not nearly as compelling a way to talk about these things. But when you look at the facts on the ground around cyber risk, that's kind of the best we can hope for is to say that we are containing the problem or at least preventing it from getting so much worse, given that it could be so much worse. Some of this, then I think the main takeaway is we've got to find a way to manage those expectations. And we've got to find a way to to talk about these things in a way that's realistic, but also does justice to all of the great work that people are doing to try to address these problems, particularly our public money folks who are are making the case for those investments and trying to find ways to talk about those hidden costs, talk about that technical debt, find the dollars for it, shift their own thinking. You know, it's it's a really, really heavy lift and it's an ongoing lift. It really requires that we for being honest with ourselves, we stop talking about solving problems and start talking about containing problems, which is a foreign thing for those of us in state and local government. Hey, Public Money Pod listeners, the UChicago Harris School of Public Policy is excited to announce that applications are now open for the upcoming ESG and Impact Investing Credential Program. I'll be instructing this course alongside John Oxtabee, Senior VP and Director of ESG Investing at Aerial Investments. We'd love to have you join us on campus on October 29th and 30th for two days of in-person lectures, case studies, networking sessions, and guest speakers. We'll cover key topics such as the policy and regulatory landscape for ESG, impact investing and measurement, financing sustainability, public market strategies and shareholder activism, private market strategies, and public-private partnerships for ESG. This course is a great way for investors or philanthropists to learn how to evaluate and manage impact investment opportunities using various frameworks, techniques, and toolkits. For enterprise leaders to gain strategies and methodologies to improve ESG performance, for public policy and regulation makers to develop more effective policies and to promote the healthy development of their industry, for a consultant or risk management professional who wants to acquire frameworks and analytical tools to better serve clients' development goals, and anyone else working in the ESG space. Discover the UChicago Harris difference when you apply today. Explore the program at har.rs slash Harris ESG. That's har.rs slash Harris ESG. Hope to see you there. Thanks again to our season two sponsors, Build America Mutual, MuniPro, Odyssey Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. The Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy, where we are proudly produced by Hannah Burnick. You can learn more about the center and its work at munifinance.uchicago.edu. That's munifinance.uchicago.edu. You can learn more about Liz Farmer's work at her substack, Long Story Short. That's Long Story Short. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next time on The Public Money.